everyone and welcome to another Scotsway podcast and today I'm joined by Martin Metcalf who has sung with the Fornicators, the Filthy Tongues but for very many of us he will always be thought of as the front man with Goodbye Mr Mackenzie, a legendary Scottish band I'm prepared to say. Hello Martin. Oh, uh, well, we'll talk about the whole year career, but we're going to go back to the start because there is a brand new Goodbye Mr. McKenzie album uh, coming out. What can you tell us about that? <clears throat> um, well, after the surprise reunion in 2019, um, which was really, really not planned um, and sort of <clears throat> came into being end of January, February 2019 and by... No, as many people will know, we were selling gigs out, so um, it rolled on that whole year, and we decided to film some of it, and we decided to record as much of it as we could, um, and so the live album is largely from the Barrowlands, um, but there are a couple of other of tracks that are mixed in there that are that are from other venues as well. Um, we had a quite a, a kind of a bit of a disaster on stage sound wise at one point um, at the Barrowlands, and we didn't know what the, what the hell was going on. So a couple of those songs were just a bit too wonky to put on there. There's a bit there's, there's there's some wonkiness in there, you know. It's genuine, you know. There's genuine wonkiness throughout the album, but that was just a that was a wonky too far. I, what you were saying about uh, selling out gigs, I mean, this is, from what I could see from the footage, it's a sell-out battle and it's absolutely jumping. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. It was um, beyond anything we could have imagined. I mean, we really we really thought we'd do a couple of gigs um, late spring and then just go back to normal kind of thing, but it just kept rolling on that year. And then... Of course, the most bizarre thing happened straight afterwards, which was COVID kicked in. So <clears throat> we're very lucky, you know, very lucky we managed to to to, to get that far with it all. It we had to pull gigs. Yeah. In, in 2020, yeah. we had quite a lot of gigs booked in because we wanted more of it. <laughs> uh, and uh, they, they've gone, as everyone will have guessed. So, um, yeah. Hoping, really hoping we can play this year. Were you surprised at the thirst for that people had to see you live again? Oh, uh, <clears throat> um, we've the, this is what it was like. We thought we'll do a, do a liquid rooms and a Glasgow gig, and <clears throat> we got you know we know the uh, regular music. So we went and met regular music, our friend Mark there, and <clears throat> he said, "Okay, we'll put you on. We'll put you on um, an Orin Moore in Glasgow." All right, okay. Well, we hope that goes okay, you know. And uh, and then after a few weeks, before tickets went on sale, Mark said, "Fuck it, let's do the garage." And we're like, "Are you sure? Are, re are you really sure we can?" pull that one off, you know what I mean? Because that's another 200 bodies, you know, yeah. to, to fill the space. So, um, the garage is about 750 and Ordinwar's about maybe 450, 500, something like that. Mm -hmm. 
So that's that's how we felt about it. You know, we didn't we felt we couldn't fill the garage in Glasgow and ended up selling out the barland, which was you know, it was just completely wild. Um, incredible um that there is such a, a thirst for going out to see the bands that you maybe grew up with. I remember mm-hmm. uh, hearing Bruce Watson talking about the Skids revival gigs. And yeah. originally they yeah. were going to play a couple of gigs in Dunfermline mm-hmm. and they thought that mm-hmm. might be it. And then by the mm-hmm. time me and my brother saw them, they were at the ABC mm-hmm. and it was sold out. Yeah. So there really is that desire to go back out and see the bands that you, you grew up with. Well, the, the Skids were particularly good live you know they were yeah. you know i think the word spread pretty quickly that this was really worth going to see because um well with bruce watson and jamie watson <clears throat> being this tight blood unit that, yeah. that and really skillful guitarists covering for all the parts that stuart couldn't play stuart adam because mm-hmm. he didn't have two bodies you know uh and, and obviously Richard's still being fit, really fit and fit. Sure. And um, many singers, by the time they get to that point, are you have to, you know, feel them in. <laughs> uh, but Richard's certainly not like that. You know, he's really fantastic. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are other bands. I've not really experienced a lot of, um, you know, Heritage Trail type gigs um, with my the band at the start of this millennia, Eyes and the Filthy Tongues, we supported Killing Joke and we were kind of surprised. They played the ABC. We were kind of surprised that they could still do that kind of level. And um, they were great, really great. He made such a great entrance, Jazz Coleman. We were all in the dressing room, uh, which was right beside the stage. And we were all just chatting away. And Stacey's from America and she didn't really know Killing Joke very well. And Jazz kind of marched past the dressing room like a robot, and his, his eyes were like out in stalks. He was obviously completely vibed up before yeah, he even totally. got on the stage. It was just this entity walking past us. It was incredible. I always thought about Jazz Coleman, that everything he did, you could feel like he meant it. He really kind of, oh, you know, yeah. 100% it, absolutely. <laughs> So you decide you're going to do the DVD documentary alongside it. When was that a decision? We we are filming, in the process of filming a full-length documentary. That's kind of how it started out. But um, we decided that we wanted to do a short one just to sort of, um, you, you know... Journal, if you like, the the progress of the first gigs to the Barrowland, right? Um, and so yeah, we 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 made a smaller one, a smaller DVD video, but hopefully there will be a a full length documentary in the future. But that's really down to funding. Um, so we could manage to do this small one, but there's there's another one cooking. Um, the decision really was made for us by the the documentary, uh, the filmmakers, Karen Lamond and, and and Gigi Welsh, both wanted to do it. So excellent. It, it wasn't something that we planned. It's like that whole year happened to us, rather than 
us formulating some master plan and, and pulling it off, it kind of evolved as it went. And um, Karen and Gigi were part of that evolution. So, yeah, that was a great thing. I often wonder, do, when you decide to do something like that, does the kind of spectre of Spinal Tap hang over the band? Just in, <laughs> <laughs> or do you embrace it? Do you just go, listen, we're a rock band, we're gonna, this is what we do? Hmm, <laughs> I don't know. Because um, it's always one of these things in bands that we can't do that, it's too Spinal Tap. It's like become, is that an adjective? You know, it's like, it's too Python-esque, you know, that kind yes, of thing. Nice. Um we didn't feel like we were being spinal tap about it. Do you think that? No, no not at all. I don't at all. I just think, as you say, it's such a thing that that bands obviously think about that it probably is something that you almost kind of, a wee tick box, you say, oh, well, you know, <laughs> uh, talk about uh, the guitar too much there, or we, you know. Or, oh, in the documentary, yeah. The, the, the... But no, no, I didn't think that at all. I just wondered if, you know, there's a fear when you go into it that, uh, you know, you're revealing certain bits of yourself. Well, I think it's kind of the opposite of Spinal Tap because Spinal Tap were obviously great musicians, right? And we, and we, we thought, uh, I, I suppose the Spinal Tapness comes from the interaction between the people and the nonsense they talk to each other. With us, it was more like, fuck, we can't be... We can't not be spinal tap in our playing. We've actually got to be really together, and um, uh, which was reasonably um, tricky because Rona, the keyboard player from the old days, from Mackenzie days, hadn't touched the keyboard for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, Big John obviously has his medical condition. And so John and, and Rona were, we thought, you know this better be good, you know, we better get it right and we better make it worthwhile and we put such a lot of effort into rehearsal and making it sound good. Uh, and then, of course, what happened to me was I developed laryngitis on the on the third gig, something like yeah. that, which was a totally devastating thing. So, no, uh, we, we didn't think it was going to be Spinal Tap, but in a way, <laughs> I suppose there, there are, uh, in, in, the, in the video, on the DVD, there's a section of me speaking to the audience with this voice that doesn't work, you know, and I'm like, oh, God, laryngitis. So that might, I suppose you could call that slightly I know, I didn't think that for a moment. I just thought when you start these things, it might, actually what comes across in the CD and in the DVD from the footage is the mm-hmm. warmth of people towards you, you know, the real kind mm-hmm. of dis- desire to sing these songs along with the, the band yeah. that in the first place. So going back to the start, how did the band come about? How did Goodbye Mr McKenzie begin? Several sort of reprobates from Bathgate, you know, in different bands uh, coming through Edinburgh and, you know, setting up through here. I mean, that, the, we had our bands in Bathgate and then we moved through, some of us moved to Edinburgh. Some of us, of those, those guys stayed in Bathgate and just commuted through for rehearsals and things. But yeah, I mean, I think um, I said recently that my very first band was, I lived in a house on what was called the Glasgow Roads. There's a scheme across the Glasgow Road called Windy Now. So I was in there about 
200 yards away as my bass player, my drummer, because we couldn't play. We just decided you're the bass player, you're the drummer. So, so, and then about another 200, 300 yards down the road, the bass player, the other bass, no, but two bass players actually, right? We had uh, Chuck Parker and um, Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly's drummer, Chuck Parker was the, originally was the roadie, but he turned out to be a great bass player. And before that, we had a guy called Coley who lived in Fogside, which was the next scheme down. And uh, he, he, he played bass for a while. So the four of us were just like guys knocking around who all loved music, you know, massive love of music. We were all aged between 16 and kind of 13 at that point. Uh, and... Uh, I picked up a guitar when I was 15, so. And and sometimes you get people in the band because they can afford to buy the equipment because they've got a job maybe, you know, something right. like that. Or just, I mean, really, the, the foundation for that band was friendship. Mm. And then we expanded about a mile west eventually, and I met, met these other guys from the other school, which you'll know about coming from Scotland that there's two types of school in every <laughs> town. And uh, we started hanging around with them and we all loved the punk scene and the post-punk music that was coming in. And so there's probably about eight people involved in the of Goodbye Miss McKenzie in that town in Bathgate, you know. And then, then I just moved through Edinburgh and then we picked up Shirley through here and we picked up Rona, um, who's from Kinloch leaving near Fort William. So we started to become almost like an international band. You know, we had a Highlander in the band. And then <laughs> by the end of it, we had a Glaswegian in the band, which was Big John, and we had somebody from Dunfries. That was Finn. So we really kind of spread our wings. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just evolved. It was never... <clears throat> and it was never really about who's the fanciest player, who's the slickest, funkiest bass player we can get our hands on that can do all that slapping. And it was more about what band do you like and can you play along with us? You know, so... Um, and then we just tried to use any brain cells that we actually had to make music that sounded unique enough for us, you know, this, that wasn't like other people. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think we managed to do that. Whether it's good, unique, or not, that's that's up to the audience to decide. Oh, I mean, I think uh, you're an interesting band anyway. But the Edinburgh music of that time for me always seemed to be more influenced by punk than what was happening in Glasgow. Yeah, the Glasgow yeah. scene, and I think you know there was that time where you know, Glasgow was almost banned from punk. Uh, you know, punk was almost banned from Glasgow and you had yeah, to go yeah. to Paisley or Edinburgh or, or, yeah. or, or whatever to see a band. And I think that does come through in the music because it seems to be yourselves and, uh, say, bands that David Henderson was involved in or something like that. There was a punkier, mm. kind of more arty aspect to it than maybe what was happening in uh, Glasgow, which seemed to be more, mm -hmm. more straightforward soul influenced. Do you think that's right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I would have thought Glasgow was a perfect place for punk to kick off. But saying that, you know, Manchester, the thing was, 
in London, it may have been hard for people dressing in an unusual manner in London, <clears throat> but it wasn't as hard as it would be in, in Manchester or, or Glasgow. So, yeah. um, because people did want to, you know, as Richard said, um, prosecute real violence against you if you look different. And that's why the buzzcocks were more like just the ties, really, the, yeah. the, the, the sort of tight, small knotted ties. And um, it wasn't as extreme looking as, uh, as other places. Edinburgh, I don't know, that's an, that's an image thing I'm thinking about. Yeah. But Edinburgh um, maybe was a little bit more arty. I mean, although that was levelled at us and we didn't know what anyone was talking about. That's just what we did. We didn't think about trying to be R.A. We didn't think the skids were R.A. We didn't think the scars were R.A. We didn't think um, seizing the Banshees were R.A. But it was a, a sort of claim that was level. I know that none of those bands, well, seizing the Banshees definitely don't come from Edinburgh, but that kind of post-punk R.A. thing was was beyond our understanding as far as art goes because we didn't have any understanding of art. We just knew we liked this strange angular sound in music and that we weren't that keen on the second wave of punk. Yeah. It didn't seem to have the the intelligence of the first wave, you know, like the, all the characters that were involved in the first wave, wave of punk. They might have been mental, but they were they were quite smart guys, a lot yeah. of them. Um with, with I'm not, not even that they were, were more. I'm not saying they're more intelligent than the second wave of punk, but they seem to have a broader outlook, you know, a world or you know, an expansive outlook on 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 life to me. Um, and they they seem to really not care. Yeah. And, and interesting, just the, you know, you talked about image there, and the fact that goodbye, Mister McKenzie, you all look like individuals to me. It all looked like you had your own style, you know. You know, you had, as you see, mm. John the band, you know, yourself up front. You had all these different styles of things, rather than mm -hmm. looking like a band whose, you know, haircuts were, you know, exact or something like that. I'm mm. not those bands. I love some of those bands, but mm -hmm. it seemed like a very different thing. I'm guessing trying to get around is who did you think were your contemporaries when you were in Goodbye, Mister McKenzie? Okay. Uh... I know. I suppose, in a way, that that Wynn and David Henderson, they were contemporary to us. Um, they were just a little bit before us, actually, and on releasing in a major way. Mm -hmm. um, and that when were a, a, an attempt to storm the charts. You know, that was a follow-on from Fire Engines, and um, what came out of when was all their was their love of glam rock and I suppose more than more than punk a lot of it was you know seemed to be more a Mark Bolan or, or, or something like that so yeah. so proto-punks in a way glam to me punk was um, homemade glam it was DIY glam it was attention grabbing colours and, and, and materials um, and, and glam was trash, so punk was a natural sort of... So, yeah, I think that it probably came more out of glam to punk to post-punk 
to the mid eighties stuff, you know, um, where everything got a little bit too overproduced and uh, you know had to be had to be ditched, you know, at the end of the eighties. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, um, contemporary wise, I would say probably when, but I mean, we quite liked the idea of transition vamp. You know, it was fun, yeah. fun chart stuff. It's not like we would go and. Did I buy a transition album, a, a, a vamp album? No, I, uh, but I, I enjoyed their videos and watching, and that was quite sort of glam rock. Yeah. That was pretty kind of. Um, there was a bit of Mark Bolan in that too. There was no Mark Bolan in us. We were more like you know, Love Boy and that. Um, I just I can't think of another band who would have had a former member of the Exploited and then someone who would go on to be in Garbage and yourself. And it just, you know, it it was this meeting of, it was almost like the gang, you know, when a band gets, it's mm-hmm. like you mentioned earlier on about how the band was through friendship and it seemed mm-hmm. to be that way. It wasn't mm-hmm. someone had picked someone because they fitted. It was like, no, yeah. you're the kind of last gang in town and we're going to do this together. Yeah, exactly. And, and that actually fitted with the Sex Pistols presentation as well they all presented as different from each other um the clash and the jam kind of uniformed up to some sort of level but uh you know the pistols were individuals and i think that punk was meant to be about individuality and um so it never crossed our minds to try and uh, give ourselves a uniform uh we just um and we were called various things that weren't actually that insulting, believe it or not. <laughs> like an explosion in a cake factory was one thing we got called. Or something else about the Adams family, you know, referred to as the ro- a rock Adams family or something. You know, an Adams family is a, a, a group of individuals. Yes. You know, they're, they're all very identifiably different sort of characters. And that's what we were like. The other thing was uh, your sound on record. You said that things were getting more and more produced as the 80s went on and into the 90s. But to me, particularly the first album, it sounds almost like a band playing live. And I think that's why when you see the live gigs now, people relate to it so much because it sounds like the record they had in the first place. Well, yeah, that's great. I mean, personally, I think it could have been more live sounding, but... I, at the time, it's just the way things had gone, I think, through the 80s and the equipment that was in front of us. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, uh, at, at, the, at the point we were at our biggest, we actually sounded the biggest as well, you know, the, that we have ever sounded. Um, I mean, it, I always sort of felt like, you know, Joy Division was some kind of meeting between the Stooges and a chamber orchestra, or, you know, because of the string sounds they, yeah. they had filtering through. We were really influenced by New Order and Joy Division, and and I think we went down the line of synthesized strings and things like that. And, you know, it was just the way it was at the time. Um, and I don't think we would do that today. We wouldn't probably... We were responding to technology as well as you know the the zeitgeist of the musical sort of the musical the direction music was going at that point yeah and of course looking back 
you would be young as well. And, you know, yeah, that's often the case where it's di more difficult. It's, I was thinking about this, looking back, uh, going back to your debut album, 30 years. I think there's not many people that have to or do look back on their youth in the way, you know, maybe a footballer who's being, uh, you know, rewarded or thought of, uh, praised many, many years later, but there's not many folk look on their young mm -hmm. and it's all there. Um, and they don't have happening? to, they don't have to go and score goals at Olympic level, you know what I mean, or Premiership level 30 years later, whereas we were, we were, I mean, people just expect you to be exactly the same kind of thing, you know, until they find out you're not, you know, <laughs> that you've put on a couple of stone and that kind of thing. Um, and that, you know, with my voice going and with laryngitis, that must have been a bit of a shock. But to be fair, and uh, I'm really grateful to the audience that they picked it up, you know, and they, you know, they, they took over, you know, it was really a fantastic feeling to, to have that support, you know. And this is a question that kind of everyone's been asked, but as you say, end of 2019 and then 2020, almost straight away, you were into COVID and lockdown and everything. How has it been for you? Have you been able to plan anything? Or has been looking after the CD been a help? I mean, how's it, how's it been? Oh, a help. Um, well, work, work just carried on, you know, and, and um, uh, people tend to think that this is a, a hobby <laughs> and it, it, it's it's a lot of work you know I, I mixed the album mm -hmm. you know I and I took a lot longer than I thought it was going to. I mean people think I used to look at live albums and these I used to at the bottom it said produced by I'm like it's a live album how do you need a producer in a live album but um you it's not the same as a bootleg, you know, you've got, you, there's work goes into getting it right and the atmosphere right and all that sort of thing, you know. Uh, so that was a lot of work for me. Um, finishing the edit was a lot, a lot of work for Gigi because uh, she, she's from America. So she's over there now and she did all the edits over there. And, um, and at the same time we were, we were writing as well, trying to write new material. So, we put out a couple of, I know this is good by Miss McKenzie, but we put out a couple of Filthy Tongue songs mm -hmm. written in, uh, in lockdown uh, during that period. We put them out just digi digitally. And um, so we actually released material through lockdown, you know, new material. And um, we're, I, I'm working on... Um, Filthy Tongues stuff still. We're we're really hoping to have a Filthy Tongues album out this year. Excellent. And hopefully a Goodbye Mr. McKenzie album. Maybe not this year, but we'll try, you know, we'll do our best to get that one out as well. So, Would yeah, no, lockdown, lockdown's not been... I think lockdown's a little bit easier for creatives than it is for people who, who clock in and do their job, you know. Um, yeah. But saying that, creatives can be lazy bastards and um, getting motivated on your own in the house, especially when there are other people around to disturb you. Um, I mean, I can be in the middle of writing a song and then the door will open and it's like, can you help me with the dog? You know, that kind of stuff. So, and the, and the muse just flies away out the window, you know. I'm just like, what was I writing about there? So, yeah.
And you had, uh, as you say, plans to tour more into 2020. Have that, they been kind of mm. pushed over to 2021 or can you not do that yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, dates have been moved since then because uh, it's just gone on longer than anyone could have imagined, I think. I mean, you could have imagined that if you look back at the Spanish flu, you know, it was a two-year cycle then. But I suppose everyone naturally assumes that we're living in this amazing technological age now that, that things can be snapped up like that. You know, we can get yeah. a vaccine, no problem. And then you find out that you've got how many billions of people to give a vaccine to around the world before this is contained. So, yeah, it's, it's, there's been a lot of shocks and a lot of disappointments through, throughout this stuff, but there's also been good stuff, you know. Um, I've written lyrics about hating fresh air and um, I've been kind of forced to kind of enjoy a bit of nature, which is not, I'm, I, I'm a real, my dad was a coal miner and um, I think I inherited that need for darkness. <laughs> no. <laughs> And maybe hatred of daylight, perhaps. Maybe that's the alcoholic in me. I can't stand the daylight, you know. But, um, yeah. So, yeah, but you must be delighted about not just the reaction to the gigs you did, but also the excitement about the CD coming out and the fact that people are, are keen for more Goodbye, Mr. Mm-hmm. McKenzie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it's exciting, and but... At the same time, it feels like a little bit of a responsibility, you know, because people have had such a hard time that it's like we've got again, we've got to, we've got to come up with something that's gonna pick people's spirits up in our own miserable sort of way of <laughs> <laughs> It's funny you say that. I never thought of you as a miserable band, but they, they, <laughs> well <laughs> The subject matter, perhaps, yeah. yeah the perhaps performances are performances are miserable. Yeah. Although I'm not one for smiling a lot. <laughs> if I could afford David Bowie's teeth, I'd maybe smile more. <laughs> I lost one here right at the start of, of uh, lockdown. I still haven't had it replaced. Like a, a chip came off it. It was a tooth. When I was 15, I'd put new strings on my guitar and I thought, I need to get rid of all these flapping bits of metal, okay? And then being 15 and the brain not being fully developed, the frontal lobe, I think it is, um, I tried to bite this metal string, you know, the end of the metal uh, string, and all that happened was like a dent went into my tooth. And that dent was there until last March, where it's now uh, the source of an eruption of of enamel and whatever that just, it's it bounced out my face, you know? So, um, and I did go in and get it fixed, but it came out again. So, uh, and now we're locked down. I can't go and get it fixed. So anyway, yeah, I would smile more if I had, uh, David Bowie's, David Bowie's, uh, titanium teeth. They were like eight grand per tooth or something oh, like that. Works of art themselves. People say rock and roll is a glamorous business, but there you are, biting the end off your own strings. <laughs> Listen, Martin, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to do so. Cheers, Alistair. Thanks a lot. No bother. And we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers. Cheers.